Acts 28, 1 through 15. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island, and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and the next day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Putioli. There we found some brethren, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. This is the word of the Lord. This past week in our Wednesday evening small group, we had a great discussion about the book of Acts, since that's the book we're walking through as a church right now. One of the things that we talked about was the way that sometimes Acts can sort of come off as a highlight reel of the best and brightest of the early apostles doing incredible things against insurmountable odds in the power of the Spirit. And we talked about how in some ways reading Acts as a highlight reel can be discouraging to the average person because we don't live our lives like that. We, we don't, our lives don't look like mountaintop after mountaintop. And it sort of begs the question, if you read Acts like a highlight reel, are we doing something wrong? Should we expect a life of spectacular displays of God's power and spectacular events happening all the time? And it got me to thinking about what the book of Acts is really trying to communicate. Acts is not primarily a book about Peter or Paul or even about the early church. It's about the reign of Jesus liberating people from captivity to sin and death. It's about the Holy Spirit bringing new life in and through the Spirit-filled church. And so when we read the book of Acts, we get the highlights because Luke, the author, wants us to see the power of God at work. But if we look more closely, and if we use our imaginations, we can see that what people experienced in the book of Acts must have been extremely disorienting. In fact, what I think we'll see, and what we'll understand more and more as we walk through this passage, is that 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus, meets people in their vulnerability and weakness, meets us in our disorientation. So throughout Acts, we hear these amazing stories of Stephen and Philip, Peter, and Paul. But again, if we pay close attention, these powerful acts of Jesus in the lives of the apostles, it's all set in the context of their weakness and their vulnerability. Just think about how many times we read about persecution, imprisonment, death threats, shipwrecks, martyrdom, sickness, constantly being misunderstood, and almost always in some sort of conflict with people. Most of us have found this past year extremely disorienting. I know as a leader that just trying to keep up to date on the always changing rules and regulations, it's it's almost impossible. Last week alone, I think there were two major changes to the way we're supposed to do things and see things. So it's just overwhelming. And I think that most of us have been carrying stress and anxiety because of the pandemic that that I'm, I'm pretty sure we haven't even reckoned with yet. I think we're going to be dealing with fallout from this thing for a long time, if and when it ends. I, I'm hopeful that it will. But if the gospel is just about victories and stories of power and highlight reels, then it seems to have little to do with my life and the way that I experience the world. And I'm guessing that if it's a highlight reel, it has very little to do with your life either, you know? And thankfully, the good news of Jesus specifically meets us in our weakness and in our vulnerability. In fact, that's where Jesus intends to meet us. So in the story we heard just a few moments ago from Acts 28, 1 through 15, what we have is a narrative example of how God meets us in our weakness, how in our vulnerability, he gives us opportunity to experience and to share the love of Jesus. Now, unlike some biblical passages where the applications are obvious, like love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you would have them do to you, this passage in Acts 28 doesn't contain commands for us. It isn't conducive then to a sermon that has three points or fill-in-the-blank answers. Instead, what it gives us is a story from which we might draw implications. And these implications provide us an opportunity to think for ourselves and to think creatively about how we might apply what we learn in our current setting and in our specific lives. Today, I'm going to highlight five implications that I see illustrated in this story. But first, I want to invite us to use our imaginations for a moment and try to get a little closer to how Paul and the people of the shipwreck may have experienced things. I'm going to play an audio clip from the 1996 film White Squall. I think showing the video from the movie might actually take our mind out of the biblical passage, so I'm going to invite us just to listen. Close your eyes if it helps. Imagine yourself in Paul's situation. Can you feel the fear, the powerlessness as a prisoner on a ship that you don't command in a sea that no human can command? Imagine the chaos the terror. Taste the salty sea spray. Feel the wind on your face. There's no Coast Guard to save you. They haven't been invented yet. There's no life jacket, and there's nowhere to run.
Wouldn't that scene just be absolutely terrifying? But imagine this, it actually gets worse as we move into chapter 28. The storm was bad. It had blocked out the stars and the moon for days. They were at the mercy of the wind and the current, and they were days off course. They couldn't navigate because they couldn't see the sky. They had no idea where they were. Now, many of the islands in the Mediterranean were still outside the control of the Roman Empire, and they had a variety of indigenous peoples living there. It was no guarantee that making it to shore would be any safer than staying at sea in a storm. In fact, some of the indigenous people in that area were known to be violent to outsiders unless they brought things of, of value as gifts. While Paul and his crew had thrown almost everything overboard, they had no material possessions left on their person. They were exhausted. They were weak. They were lost. They're completely at the mercy of what comes next. Now that's the situation. Now let's engage the story. The story is told by Luke, who is a companion of Paul on this part of the journey. And that means that it's told through the perspective of a follower of Jesus. Luke knows that Paul is an apostle and that he's on his way to Rome to have an audience with Caesar himself. This is a missionary journey in disguise. I say a missionary journey in disguise because Paul is disguised as a prisoner. I mean, he really is a prisoner. He's going to Rome because he's been arrested. And oftentimes, when we think of missionaries, we think of people with knowledge and power and technology going into places where they can be of help. Horror stories abound of European missionaries in South and Central America, and even in, to our own indigenous people in the continental United States. And these horror stories include people bringing them uh, diseases and an attitude of superiority. Now, that's a caricature, of course. Not all missionaries were like that, and most today are nothing like that. But caricatures exist for a reason. There were enough instances of missionaries with superiority complexes to warrant that type of stereotype. But the first implication of this story is that the gospel of Jesus allows no, it, it invites us to receive help from others. The text describes the natives as barbaros. That's a Greek word that means barbarian. People who do not speak Latin or Greek. Or more specifically, people who did not live by Greek or Roman cultural norms. But even though these people were maybe seen from a Roman perspective as barbaric or, or, or lacking high culture, these indigenous people showed kindness to Paul and to the shipwrecked crew and prisoners. The Greek word uh, for kindness is philanthropian. Philanthropian, from which we get the English word philanthropy. The Greek word only shows up here and in one other place in the whole New Testament. It's in Titus 3.4. And in that passage, it's used to describe God's generous kindness toward us. So let me just say that again. This word, philanthropia, is used two times in the whole New Testament. And one of those times, it's used to describe God and his character of kindness. Now, that's, that's powerful. And here, in the other description, the other use of that word, it describes a group of indigenous people, not Christian, not Greek, not Roman. And they are the ones who show godly grace toward Paul and the others. They're kind. They showed hospitality even when Paul had nothing of material value to offer them. Luke says, they received us 
all. Listen, receiving help from people is a major American hang-up. In my experience, it's even worse for some reason in the church. If I had to guess, it's probably because many of us have been fed a bunch of garbage about how the church needs to be the ones doing the helping. We need to have the answers. We need to offer support. We need to come in strong and show that we can do it. Now, I love being part of a church that actually helps people, like with tangible, meaningful service. I love it. I love that there is very much a part of us living out our faith in serving other people. But we serve because it's part of following Jesus, not because people can't or shouldn't help us too. If you want to take someone's dignity away, don't let them offer what they have to offer. In the Gospels, Jesus, God incarnate, often asked for help. I mean, the guy could walk on water, but he asked Peter, the fisherman, to take him out on his boat so he could preach to the crowds. Jesus could create water, but he asked a woman at the well for a drink. He can make food, but he uses a little boy's five loaves and two fishes to feed the multitude. If you want to build intimacy, be real with your needs and your vulnerability, and trust that God can work in and through other people, even people who don't follow Jesus. Did the indigenous people on Malta have some messed up theology? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing with the snake biting Paul. Uh, to them, one minute it shows that he must be cursed. Uh, the next moment he must be a god because he's not dead from the snake bite. None of that's theologically correct. Okay, but you know what? They still have a lot to offer. Theology exams are not required to help someone. Thank God, because a lot of Christians have some pretty messed up theology. When we allow others to help us, we open our hearts and our minds to see how God is bigger than our Christian tribe, bigger than our pride, bigger than our self-sufficiency. And when we allow others to help us, it expands their humanity and grants dignity to a being who is already made in the image of God. And the second implication from the story is to learn to serve with what we've got. All right, you, you don't need shipwrecks or pandemics to identify with feeling insecure. There's hardly a day that goes by that I, I wish for uh, that I were better at almost everything I do. And that's, that's my job. That's what I'm trained for, okay? I wish I was doing better in almost everything that I am trained to do. But life has a way of putting us in positions where our particular expertise doesn't necessarily do any good. All the education in the world can't fix someone when they've had a major loss in their life. The best teacher in the world might feel inadequate to reach the student whose home life is in shambles. You might be the best pipe fitter or electrician in town, but parenting or dealing with difficult people makes you feel way outside of your element. Paul was washed up on this island, basically a waterlogged scholar. He's no survivalist. He spent years studying as a scholar and then more years traveling around the known world teaching. And in the scene of a shipwreck, he's not going to study his way to some food or preach his way into some warm blankets and shelter. Paul is the guy gathering sticks for the fire. He pitches in to meet the needs around him. And that's what loving your neighbor looks like. 
I thank God for specialists, right, who spend their life studying orthopedics so that my knee could have, you know, been reconstructed several years ago. I thank God for teachers who help educate future generations. I really thank God for builders who design, make, and paint homes so that people can devote their lives to other things, you know? It's important to have specialties. But there comes a time, actually, that time comes almost every day if your eyes are open, that there's opportunities to serve outside of our station in life or outside of our expertise. Jesus was a bit overqualified to wash his disciples' feet, don't you think? And yet the job needed to be done. Dirty work does not diminish the glory of Jesus. Jesus brings glory to dirty work. And I think of our church and I just smile. We have people who are overeducated, overqualified, overexperienced, and all of you pitch in and serve others when there's a need. There's nothing too low for a follower of Jesus to help out with. Now, in this story, Paul has nothing material to offer, but his goodwill and some elbow grease and gathering some sticks for the fire. He had nothing to trade with, and yet the lead Roman of the island, Publius, uh, gave him hospitality. You know what Paul does have, though? He has faith and a connection with God. And he learns that Publius, this this Roman official, that his father was sick. And what was likely called Malta fever, it was a bacterial infection common in goat's milk on seven, uh, sorry, several Mediterranean islands in those days. So Paul brings what he has, prayer and faith in God. And in this particular instance, God decides to heal through Paul, the father of Publius and, and many other islanders during their three month stay there. Will you always have something material or specialized knowledge to offer the people in your life? Probably not. But the gift of presence and service and faith might be more powerful in building relationships anyway. Now, the third implication from the story is a bit related to the first two, and that's that every person, every person needs encouragement. In the story, Paul has been through so much up to this point. He's been through a storm, through a shipwreck, through three months on Malta, which is infinitely closer to Tunisia in North Africa than it is to Rome. I mean, he's like way off course. And this is all after two years of house arrest in Caesarea. Uh, I don't know how this guy's doing it, I would be so discouraged. I would be wondering, God, where are you in this? But as Paul gets closer to Rome, they pull into this port somewhere near modern-day Naples in Italy. And there some brethren, some followers of Jesus, come to see him. And it says that he was encouraged. Friends, let's just assume that everyone you know needs encouragement. Everyone. What is one way you could encourage one person this week in the Lord. It could be a thoughtful card, a kind text message, the gift of presence. Maybe go for a walk with someone. Maybe it's a a word of scripture, just something that says, I see you, you're not alone, I care. It doesn't have to be much, but unfortunately, there's far too little encouragement in the world these days. We are living in a society designed to make us insecure so that we will then buy things that we think will make ourselves feel better. 
But the way of Jesus is to be incarnate, in the flesh, in and with people. So let us encourage one another and those around us, because I guarantee you, everyone you meet is having a hard time. The fourth implication of this story is that God is very much in control. I pointed this out last week, but there's more of it in this story. The story is framed with passive sentences. So others decided when they should set sail and on what ship in the beginning of chapter 27. Then they were all brought safely to land, says the end of chapter 27. Then the beginning of chapter 28, we read, when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. And Malta, by the way, means refuge. It's kind of cool. So God is sovereign over the story. It probably did not feel like it during the storm. It probably didn't seem like it when they washed up on the shore. But God is over the story, and he's over our story as well. By the estimation of worldly power and economics, Paul didn't have much to offer, especially on that island. But God worked in and through him, and he gained favor uh, among the locals there, both the indigenous locals and the Roman family Publius and his household. He received hospitality there for three days. That was the standard expectation for hospitality to Roman citizens. So Paul was a Roman citizen, and he would expect three days of hospitality from this Publius character, no more than that, no less than that. But Paul showed himself of value because of God's work in and through him. And in the end, Paul was not only given lodging for three months, but when they were leaving, he was given honors and gifts both by the Romans and by the indigenous people. He was given full supplies for their entire voyage to Rome. He didn't have to buy it. He didn't have to use his power or position to get it. It was because of the favor that he had from being a servant and being a man of God. The Roman officer, by contrast, would have been given lodging because of his association with the empire. Publius would have had to offer him hospitality out of fear of, uh, of Caesar. But as an agent of God, Paul wasn't using power or coercion. It, he was a blessing to the community. Friends, wouldn't it be fantastic if the church was known more for being a blessing than a drain? More for being a servant of people around us than demanding our rights and arguing over everything all the time. We don't need power or position to be of value in the world. We don't need to fear um, the government. We don't need to fear not having our rights. God works in and through children. He works in and through the elderly. He works in and through the formally educated and the graduates of the school of hard knocks. God is not hemmed in by the world's definition of honor and power. Now, Paul has no idea how this story is going to end. History tells us that in 10 to 15 years from this episode, he's going to be executed by the Roman Empire. Following Jesus, God's sovereignty. There's no guarantee for safety or comfort. But honestly, neither is empire or capitalism or socialism or any other humanism. What is true and what Paul is banking on is that God is faithful to do what is best for the long-term plan of the world for his creation. And he's banking on the fact that our place is somewhere in that plan of new creation. Finally, the fifth implication, 
and this is actually more of an observation, is that the good news of Jesus is not merely just available to the vulnerable. It requires vulnerability. The gospel message literally revolves around the idea that the God of the universe so loves us and his creation that he made himself vulnerable. Jesus didn't just appear to have needs. Jesus didn't pretend to be human. Jesus was truly incarnated into a baby, the weakest form of human existence. And he was born in Bethlehem, one of the smaller towns of Israel, which itself is an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. Jesus entrusted himself to a ragtag group of people, one of whom would betray him. He died at the hands of the empire and his friends were scattered and depressed. Jesus is the definition of vulnerable. And yet, God worked in and through his obedience and his humility and his faithfulness to bring about the salvation of the world. The message of Jesus is one of humility and trust. It feels weak and insecure in a culture of materialism, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And on this Ascension Sunday of all Sundays, we can look at our vulnerability in the face and know that we're not only in the good company of Jesus, we're also going to share in his destiny of recreation and resurrection. And that is very good news.